Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast for the foreign policy and global development communities and anyone who wants a deeper understanding of what is driving events in the world today. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. Enjoy the show. Of all the countries that border Ukraine, Moldova is arguably the most vulnerable to Russian aggression. Since 1992, Russian troops have been present in a breakaway region of Moldova called Transnistria. This is a majority Russian-speaking region that receives considerable support from Moscow. In late April, there were a series of explosions in Transnistria. The perpetrators are unknown, but the explosions further heightened concerns that Russia's invasion of Ukraine would spill over into Transnistria and possibly even Moldova proper. My guest today, Paula Erizanu, is a journalist and author from Moldova and also based in the UK. I caught up with her from Chisinau, Moldova's capital city. We kick off discussing the general mood of people in Chisinau as Russia targets the Ukrainian port city of Odessa, which is not far from the Moldovan border. We then discuss the history of the Transnistria conflict before having a broader conversation about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is impacting Moldovan politics and society. This conversation, I think, is a very helpful entry point to understand the unique position that Moldova finds itself in today in the wake of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. The current government of Moldova is pro-European, seeks integration into the European Union. And as I am recording this, Charles Michel, the president of the European Council, is in Moldova and announced additional European Union military support to Moldova. And this is very clearly a response to Russia's threatening posture against Moldova. Uh, As always, feel free to reach out to me if you have suggestions of people I should interview or topics I should cover. I always love hearing from you. You can reach me via email using the contact button on globaldispatches.org, or you can hit me up on Twitter at Mark L. Goldberg. Thanks. Now, here is my conversation with journalist and author Paula Arizanu. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. I um, did a Vox Pop last week um, with people in Chisinau, strangers and friends alike, um, asking them how they felt about the um, new incidents in Transnistria. And what I found was um, quite a divided crowd. So about half of the people felt quite tense and some of them even considered fleeing the country. So I remember, for instance, one guy I met at the central market in Kishno 
was on the phone to his relative in Italy and they were discussing potential plans for him to join his relative in Italy. But then on the other hand, the other half of people that I've spoken to are quite calm and they told me that they were really panicky in the first days of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. But since then, either their kind of sense of fear has paralyzed or um, they don't believe that an actual kind of full-scale invasion of Moldova by Russia is possible. Um, so, yeah, there is some tension here, um, but it sounds like people are not quite as scared as they were um, in the first days of war. And actually, I was speaking to a friend of mine who helped her parents flee the country in the first week of war, and she said that they have now returned um, mm. and they're staying here. So, it, like, there's obvious tension and people are speaking about this and there is some fear but at the same time um it's not quite the panic um from the uh, from february basically you know on a per capita basis moldova has accepted more ukrainian refugees than any other country in europe thus far how has the Moldovan government or civil society, such as it is, responded to this influx of Ukrainian refugees in the country? Um, there was a lot of um, a lot of support for Ukrainian refugees from the first day of war. Um, so I think um, the last time I checked, we had more than 400,000 Ukrainians cross the Moldovan border. Uh, but then um, it's just under 100,000 that are still staying um, in Moldova. Most of them are hosted by individual families. Um, and unlike any other country, um, about 60% of them are based in Kishino, the capital city of Moldova and uh, the others are in villages and the rest of the country and the response you know has been really warm um and i have actually spoken to a lot of um volunteers i spent some time at the refugee centers and um well some of the anecdotes i can share you know include the the fact that um, there are families that have returned from Austria or Germany to Moldova because um, they found the conditions um, that they were offered here a lot better than what they got there or they really got along with their hosts here. And so they, they wanted to return. I also interviewed a Ukrainian artist for the art newspaper who is disabled and both her and her um, husband are in wheelchairs and they came to Moldova in the first week of war from Odessa like the majority of refugees in in Moldova actually because we're so close to Odessa the Moldovan border is only 60 kilometers away from Odessa yeah and this artist you know they she's disabled her husband is disabled and they are staying together with her elderly parents in one family's house in a village so obviously, there's um, a lot of kind of 
positive feeling and um, a lot of hospitality that Moldovans have shown. But that is quite a big pressure for a small country like we are um, and for a relatively poor country. And so the Moldovan government has asked the international community for economic support. I have seen that unlike other countries in the region that border Ukraine. Moldova is receiving support of the World Food Program and other UN humanitarian agencies to a much larger degree that, than others because Moldovans are relatively you know, more poor. Yes. And also, um, you know, our economy is now under a lot of pressure because um, the kind of trade that we used to have with Ukraine, Belarus and Russia before the war is um, has now stopped or has shrunk. Um, but basically, uh, yes, the government asked for international support. And indeed, we have received international support via these kind of international agencies. But my government sources have told me that what we are still lacking is budget support. And actually, the only country that has donated straight to the kind of um, government account that um, they opened um, since the beginning of war and where like lots of Moldovan citizens have also um, donated to in order to help the refugee effort. Um, the only country that donated directly to them is Switzerland. Um, and all the others, the EU, the US, who have promised us a lot of um, support, have directed that money towards UN agencies, which are great on the one hand, but on the other hand, you know, they are quite bureaucratic and quite slow. Um, and until they kind of get their things together, it's still like civil society and the government that have to manage this um, refugee crisis. Uh, so earlier you referenced incidents in Transnistria. Can you just describe what those incidents were? And then we'll go back and introduce listeners to the sort of unique situation, the frozen conflict of Transnistria. But before we get there, can you explain what these recent incidents were and why they were so disconcerting for many? Yes, yeah, so um, the first incident was an explosion at the so-called Ministry of Security um, in Tiraspol, uh, in Transnistria. Um, there was no victim there, and basically no people were in the building. Um, but um, there was quite some damage to the windows and the building itself. Um, and then... In addition to that, to um, antenna uh, that transmit Russian television were damaged in Mayak, um, in um, a village in Transnistria. And then there were a few other incidents at like military objects um, in Transnistria. Um, because there were no victims in any of these um, incidents, a lot of people believe that they are false flags and um, there are. So false <laughs> flags committed by whom against whom for what purpose? Well, it depends on whom you ask. Um, so Transnistria has blamed Ukrainian infiltrators, um, whereas Ukraine is blaming Russia. 
um, for trying to destabilize things in Transnistria and Moldova. Um, the Moldovan authorities said that their analysis showed that there were factions within Transnistria and that different parts of the kind of regime there uh, either want to join the war in um, Ukraine or refuse to do it. And they're just putting pressure on each other, like the Rus pro-Russian group is putting pressure on the um on the group that wants to stay out of this war. What theory do you think is most credible? I think it's strange that that the the building of the Ministry of Security was attacked in the center of Tiraspol, and this hasn't happened in 30 years, and there were no victims, and there were basically no people inside. So that seems like it must have been organized with people from Transnistria. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but one credible theory might be that this was, you know, the pro-Russian Transnistrian security forces firing on their own empty building in a kind of false flag operation in order to blame um, anti-Russian or Ukrainian forces for it. Yes, that's one theory. Um, and yeah, I would, if that was the case, Russia would obviously um, be the one to blame for it because the pressure would have come from them hmm. um, and the kind of Transnistrian forces would either involve um, Russian agents or um, local kind of executors of those orders. There are also theories that these different attacks were made by different people and so and and that um, Maybe, for instance, the antennae that transmit Russian propaganda could have been the Ukrainians doing. I don't know. Um, at you know, at this stage, it's it's all just speculation. It it does sound like Russia and its kind of um, supporters in Transnistria were involved in this in some way, if not in all the ways. Regardless of the provenance of these attacks, uh, the situation, I think, underscores the unique characteristics of Transnistria today, characteristics that have only become heightened since the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Can you just briefly explain the, the history of that conflict? Yes. So Moldova gained independence in August 1991. Um, in 1992, there were some provocations basically that started with Transnistrian forces um, attacking police um, officers in Moldova and um, that escalated and there was a kind of short but bloody conflict that lasted from March until July and it led to um, more than a thousand um, dead civilians were killed as well um, in the war and um, the separatists were basically supported by the Kremlin um, and they were joined by Crimean Cossacks as well. So that is how it all started. The Transnistrian forces won the war, basically. And so Transnistria declared um, independence from Moldova on 
second on the second of September, nineteen ninety two. Um, but the regime there is not recognized by any country in the world, including Russia. Russia does not recognize Transnistria um, as an independent nation. Um, so for the past thirty years, we have had this kind of frozen conflict that is very similar to what happened in Ossetia and Abkhazia in Georgia or um, Donbass and uh, in East Ukraine. And over these past 30 years, you know, an elite has been developing in Transnistria that is relying on kind of monopolistic um, laws and practices in Transnistria, but also on kind of on smuggling between Ukraine and the EU. And it's essentially like one conglomerate that controls most business activity in Transnistria today, correct? It's a few kind of people at the top, but one of the key guys is Viktor Gushan, who is an ex-KGB um, agent and who founded Sheriff. Um, this is the name of the conglomerate, and they own everything from the football club that um, qualified in the Champions League this year. Um to petrol stations, telephone companies, um, supermarkets, anything you might think of. And he, interestingly, he has Ukrainian citizenship as well and a property in Ukraine. So there's a lot of speculation that because of his connections to Ukraine and because of the, uh, the so-called President Kasnoselsky's uh, connections to the uh, to Ukraine, they don't really want to get involved in the war in Ukraine. So, so that's very interesting because you know these are ostensibly very pro-Russian you know, oligarchs. I guess you could uh, use the term that receive support from Russia. Yet, as a fallout from Russia's attack on Ukraine, even sort of the elite in Transnistria are kind of trying to keep a distance from Moscow. Is that correct? Yes, yes, they are. But it's not clear how much leeway they have and how much pressure Russia can put on them um, to actually force them to do, you know, to join the war, despite the fact that they don't want to um, join it. So Transnistria gets free gas from Russia, um, crucially, and also a lot of economic and political support. Um, so, but at the same time, you know, they, these guys have traded with Ukraine because that's where the border is and with like the, uh, the corrupt kind of political elite in, in Moldova. Is there concern that Russia may seek to envelop Transnistria into, you know, its broader military aims in Ukraine? You know, earlier, for example, you noted that Odessa was just 60 kilometers from Moldova. Odessa is on like Russia's target list. To what extent is there concern that Russia may, in fact, seek to somehow either sort of formally gain territory in Transnistria or otherwise inspire pro-Russian Transnistrian forces to behave more aggressive militarily? There have been speculations about it, um, including in this article published by The Times yesterday. But at the same time, it's quite difficult to understand just 
whether um, Russia can afford the costs. And, you know, I've spoken to people who have already fled Transnistria because they are fearing mobilization, especially men, young men. Um, or, you know, I know men in Moldova here who have relatives uh, or come from Transnistria originally, but um, are based in Kishno or in other places here. And they are wondering whether they are able to visit um, their relatives there without risking getting conscripted um, if they get found, uh, you know, on Transnistrian territory. So the fears there are um, very acute um, about the kind of potential um, involvement of Transnistrian uh, men um, and military in um, the conflict. Um, but at the same time, um, it sounds like there, there is some resistance from the Transnistrian local forces, um, even if Transnistria got involved in the conflict. It, what experts have been saying is that a full kind of fledged occupation of Moldova is quite unlikely and quite costly if Odessa resists. I'm curious to learn how the conflict in Ukraine is shaping or impacting the politics of Moldova itself. You know, as I take it, there, you know, historically there's like the pro EU camp parties who are currently in charge. And then there's the more pro Russian parties uh, who have previously um, been in charge. Is there, has there been since the invasion of Ukraine, perhaps a consolidation of support around the idea of deeper integration with the European Union in Moldova? Yes, it sounds like the from like recent polls, it sounds like the majority of Moldovans um, want stronger ties with um, the EU and support um, um, the potential integration of Moldova in in the EU um, and the kind of government in Moldova. Um, is indeed um, pro-European, anti-corruption. That was their agenda that they came up with. Um, but since they've been in power, um, <laughs> they came to... Um, so President Mayasanda was elected uh, more than a year ago, and then um, the parliament uh, was elected last summer. So since they came to power, um, they have had several crises to deal with the pandemic the gas crisis when Russia um, was kind of threatening us in autumn um, with uh, not supplying us with gas, basically. And now the war in Ukraine, all of these crises have put economic pressure on uh, Moldovan society. And so the pro-Russian kind of groups um, and Kremlin's agents in Moldova, basically, are trying to use the um, e the economic effects um, and the inflation that citizens are feeling. Um, they're trying to capitalize it and use it against the government. Um, and they're organizing protests, which until now have been quite small. Um, but at the same time, it is a worrying trend and um, this pro-European government really needs international support in order to 
um, maintain a kind of um, economic stability uh, for Moldova um, in order to basically protect um, democracy and ensure a European future for Moldova. Lastly, you know, are there any inflection points or or incidents or events that you are looking towards in the future in the next you know days or months even ahead that might suggest to you how Moldova and Moldovans might experience Russians invasion of Ukraine um there's definitely um, some tension around the date of the 9th of May which is normally celebrated in Russia as Victory Day against fascism in the Second World War, but which in recent years has been used by the Kremlin um, to basically express support for the government by the Russian people and also in the kind of post-Soviet space um, by pro-Russian groups um, in the region. Um, And so... Uh, on the 9th of May, the the pro-Russian kind of groups was like, well, I, I don't even know if the pro-Russian name is a good definition because it's more like the Russian-supported and Russian-financed groups, political groups here. They are trying to organize um, events um, that will use banned symbols um, to kind of celebrate this um, Victory Day. Um, the band symbols have previously been used um, to uh, commemorate the dead from the Second World War, but um, now Russia is using those symbols like the orange and black St. George um, um, ribbon. They're using that as a sign of support for Russia's aggression. Um, against Ukraine. So the pro-European Moldovan government banned those symbols. And these groups are trying to say that they will defy the law and um, still display them on the 9th of May. Meanwhile, the government um, announced that they will organize Moldova for Peace events on the 9th of May. So Moldova for Peace is the name of um, the kind of government um, and volunteer-led campaign Um, that has helped Ukrainian refugees in Moldova from the first days of war. Um, So they are trying to kind of rebrand this day, the 9th of May, into a day that commemorates the victims of the Second World War. (laughs) Sorry about this, but also um, promotes peace um, today. The basically the tension um, that uh, people are fearing um, and feeling right now is that there might be clashes between these groups on the 9th of May and that Russian agents of influence in Moldova are going to try to create um, violent clashes as well in order to um, generate a political crisis and spark more kind of instability here. Uh, Well, Paula, thank you so much for your time. This was really helpful. Thank you for your interest. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Paula for speaking with me. And 
Of course, you heard some uh, contributions from her two COVID puppies. I also have two COVID puppies, Eugene and Murray, but mine uh, were asleep the whole time, thankfully. I also recommend you look for her recent articles in both the Financial Times and The Guardian, uh, which give, I think, further texture to the conversation we just had. All right, we'll see you next time. Thanks. Bye.